So my, my, my wife listens to Ram Das, and instead of saying Wu Sa, he says Ah So. And I, I realized that that's the exact opposite of Wu Sa, Ah So. But he's got a totally different uh, rationality for why he does it. It's supposed to be like Ah So, like, like a, he's come to a realization. But I thought it was funny though. They're totally opposites of each other. Wu Sa, Ah So. It's well. It was from what? Bad Boys, right? What's that movie called? Yeah, but I wonder if they took it from him and just reversed it, or what happened there. So, but uh, I was at a garage sale a weekend ago, and the person that was selling the products told my wife, "Wu sa." She was referring to how the basically the neighbors blocked off the whole street because. Uh, they like had to have some moving trucks come like during their yard sale and then so my wife asked her so why didn't why didn't they just block off their driveway and she's like I don't know but woo saw <laughs> and I was like see people know about that term and so we're arguing over not arguing but we're debating over what's what term should you actually use woo saw or also anyways okay guys so welcome to in-person physiology um, I hope you're as excited as I am to be back on campus and uh, yeah hopefully you all did the everybody got that announcement about the cleared for app or a link or something like that did you guys all do the cleared for thing so technically you should do it yeah yeah it's just check your email right it's in your email inbox yeah that's in your probably yeah, every day. But it's only, so the first time you do it, they just ask you, like, are you sick, essentially? And you'd be like, no or yes. And then every other time, they just say, has anything changed? And you just say yes or no, and that's it. So it's not so bad. So technically, you should do that, and I'm supposed to monitor that. And then on the 28th, they're going to start implementing check-in stations where they're going to... I don't know, they give you a wristband, I think. So I think they'll give you a wristband, and so you'll go to the check-in station, get your wristband, and then show up. And Until then, I'm supposed to manually check all your phones to see if you're <laughs> cleared or not. So, Or I think there's also some uh, interface on Canvas that I haven't found yet that will tell me that as well. Also, in Canvas, by your name, it will give you a check mark or not. I know there's some like way I could like check all at once, but Nobody is appearing to look very sick. Is anybody sick? Does anybody feel sick? Okay, that's a good sign. Probably if you felt sick, you probably wouldn't be here, right? Like, it's not, you know, it's, I'll record the lecture and it's not an exam day, so I think you guys would probably stay home. Um, yeah, well, any other logistical announcements? Well, I guess, yeah, so this is my first time back here in two years or what have you, so it's going to be fun trying to find the lab equipment and stuff that we need for the labs. So, um, but I just checked the drawers. Some of the, most of the stuff appears to be there. And, um, you know, in the beginning, it may take a little while to get everything worked out. But 
the good news is most of these labs were using this biopack software and so it's the same same equipment same software to do many different labs so we'll get we'll get uh, into the thick of things and it'll be good let's see what other announcements um can you guys think of anything no <laughs> okay Probably, yeah. I, except that I think that, like I said, uh, starting the 28th, which we don't have class the 28th. So for us, it'll be the following week, right? Whatever, March 2nd, whatever that is. Um, hey, what's up? I got your message. Cool. Um, so starting the following week, they'll have a check-in station somewhere. I'll try to find out the information and I'll send it to you guys on an announcement as soon as I figure out. Or, you know, maybe we'll just show up and find out. But I, I think they did... I got to go back and reread all the literature and messages that I got. But I know for sure that on the 28th is when they will start implementing it and it will be a wristband system. And so you'll get wristbands every day. And that will prevent us from having to, me from having to ask you if you're sick or not, I guess. You know, whatever works. Every, every college has a different system. You know, the administrators, they sit around and they try to figure this out, right? They're like, how are we gonna, you know, do this, make it like easy, at Miramar, we were like, at one point, we were checking everybody's temperature, giving them a wristband, having them initial all this stuff, and having them fill out a questionnaire. Like, it was... So that's not feasible when you start talking about hundreds to thousands of students. So they have to develop some system. And so... Uh, and every school is different. So this is what Palomar is doing. They've got this cleared for thing, and then they'll have check-in stations, and I see there's signs everywhere. So, like, stop, don't come in if you're sick, right? So whatever works. These guys, there's a lot of people that work on this stuff and uh, it makes them feel happy and fulfilled if everybody's safe, right? It makes you guys feel happy and fulfilled as well if, if you feel safe on campus, right? I noticed the thing about that is I feel like with COVID, it's like God has, we've adapted to not read things better. <laughs> like when it comes to signage. Yeah. Uh, there's just signage so many signs everywhere. everywhere. been like what desensitized or whatever yeah I can see that you know I mean it's it's changed us right this like this uh, whole experience has changed us in ways that we're still trying to figure out I see it in the students you know some of some of the students like uh, as we started online students were very participatory very into it and as we got further and further into this thing the participation just went down and down and down and down. it's Takuma note Takuma you you had a me earlier in the semester, right? And so the the energy people were more enthusiastic in the beginning, I would say, and then over time, <laughs> what's that? Biology 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, but then as time goes on, people are just like, okay, like when is this going to end? And then they just get used to it, and then now they're just on the, you know, they don't even. It's just it's changed us, right? And then how, what have you actually learned? You guys, you guys have been doing this for two years, right? Do you feel like how have you? What have you learned, <laughs> right? right so it's like and how is that going to affect you in your careers later right maybe some of it will be good because telemedicine is now a huge thing right telemedicine has really picked up i've got a lot of uh, doctors in my family so like my uncle john is over in uh, idaho skiing every day he doesn't want to be around people because he's old and he's just doing telemedicine right so it's good for him but uh, for us in the classroom, I don't know if this has been 
the best experience, right? So, um, so it's good that we're back, and it's good we'll get some hands on, and, and uh, but we'll see. I mean, obviously, telemedicine is going to be bigger, and that's probably going to be a big deal for you guys. Are any of you working in a clinic right now or anything like that? No? Yeah, you are? In a hospital? So how's that? Are you, is it like all in person or is it? Yeah, I, okay. just, I work at Tri-City Medical. Okay. Okay. Cool. So how's that experience? Yeah, the the healthcare, yeah, I mean, they've been, you guys have been dealing with this for two years as well, right? And it's just like, and then I remember initially seeing the news because they cut all other types of services except for like, you know, non-emergency services, like scheduled surgeries and stuff. They just like got rid of, and then there was a huge nurse layoff as a result of it because of the policies. And then like, uh, then what, they picked it back up, but then, and then there's also the problem of like, uh, is there overload now? There's there's healthcare overload now due to what? Like well, yeah, more COVID? All the other actual nurses like either got laid off or left and right. we Yeah, so I've been seeing, I, I'm on the TikTok, and I've seen that on the TikTok, because they, they make fun of, because, uh, you know, there was all these issues with nurses and unions and pay and things like this, and then, so they got either laid off or fired or whatever, but then the traveling nurses come in, right, and they're making, like, what, double or some way higher amount of money, so because now there's, like, this need, so it's, like, ironic, because they could have just paid the, you know what I mean, so it's a... Uh, it's uh, interesting what's going on and how these administrators make these decisions. And but I guess I mean, if you want to be a traveling nurse, it's it's great, right? So there's a lot of opportunity there in that regard. You just can't you can't I guess be at home. You have to like go travel around. And I mean, some people would call that fun, right? Go travel around. I mean, I don't know. You're still in the healthcare system, you know. That may be overwhelmed, and yeah, people are on edge probably and. It's very political now, and so people come in and they're like, "No, I'm not gonna do this," and you're like, "God, like I can, you know, I watch this stuff on the TikTok." But uh, and I also, you know, I'm I'm a technically I'm a member of the VA hospital. At a, see, I got my VA badge. Technically, I'm a member of the VA hospital because I do research there, but uh, I'm not there every day, right? So, and I'm up in the top floor, so I don't. I'm not there, you know, with the, with the patients. So that's cool. So we got at least one person that's on the gr on the ground dealing with this stuff. And what's your name, sir? Kylie. Kylie. Okay. Yeah. I've talked. All right. Cool. Yeah. The Padlet didn't work. I, I I'm gonna have to get to know you guys and get to know your names, for the most part. Uh, you know, here in class, and uh, especially during lab, I'll walk around and try to uh, get your guys' names down and stuff like that. Uh, we could do Kahoot, but I've been talking, so we could skip the Kahoot today. We can get straight to it. Um, does anyone remember what we talked about last class? 
<laughs> yeah? You guys tell me. Gotta start somewhere, right? Yes, action to potentials was a big thing. Alright? Neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters? Alright. Kylie. Hey, but the Padlet, though, I will say that the Padlet will help me, like, in between classes, like, over the weekend and stuff, like, to help me, once I, once I meet you guys and, like, know your face, you know, then I can, like, look at the Padlets and it's going to help me. And I'll learn more about you, too. Okay, so, yeah, action potentials, neurotransmitters. So, so, like, within that, I guess, like, synapses, all right? And then like, uh, so what synapses kind of uh, also cause certain type of potentials? Greater potentials, right? Greater potentials. Right, so we said like, if you think about a neuron, right, a neuron's got dendrites. The dendrites are actually really small. So this is not, a, this is a cartoon, right? So. Um, you know, and depending on, let's say this is a unipolar neuron. So here's the nucleus. This is the cell body. Okay. There are other neurons that are synapsing onto the cell body, right? Onto the dendrites. So we'll, we'll just make life simple and say that they're synapsing onto this thing. Right, and all these synapses are coming from other neurons that had action potentials, right? And they've all arrived here. And those synaptic inputs can cause different types of graded potentials, right? So they can be, and what are the two types of, I mean, we, we said there's a lot of different neurotransmitters, but most basically the neurotransmitters are either excitatory or inhibitory right so they're either going to be like a a stop signal or a go signal right they're going to be telling so some of these and all these inputs are happening on the on this side on the cell body side okay same thing so this neuron may be let's say it's an inhibitory neuron okay so that's also going to be synapsing on some cell body right Oh, here's the axon. Here's the nucleus. Here's the cell body. Right? So, not the best artist. Um, so, yeah. So, the idea is that as these things are synapsing on the cell body, if you look at the voltage... And what is the resting voltage of, uh, yeah, minus 70, right? So this is like kind of the resting voltage of a neuron. I don't know, this is time or whatever. And so, got too many markers. 
So of course the inhibitory synaptic input is going to cause hyperpolarization, right? And the excitatory input is going to cause depolarization. And so these different inputs are competing, right? Um, and what do we call these uh, excitatory synaptic things? We got a name for it. It's like another acronym. Yeah, something like that. What was that? EPSP, IPHP. Yeah, excitatory postsynaptic potentials and inhibitory postsynaptic potentials. So these would be like IPSPs, and the green ones would be. Where can I draw this right here? EPSP. Yeah? That's all ringing a bell? Cool. And eventually you reach some threshold. Does anyone know what the number is? Is it 55 or 45? I forget. 55? So eventually, once it hits threshold, okay, once it hits threshold, Okay, that will summate the axon hillock, right? And if it hits threshold, this then will cause a wave to start traveling down the axon, right? In the form of an action potential. Is there a question? Stretching? Okay. Um, right, and so that wave occurs as a result of first a massive influx of that's right so at this threshold minus 55 sodium channels open okay this gets up to like plus 30 but we'll leave it off So sodium, which is positively charged, starts rushing in. So sodium uh, channels open. Technically, that happens here. All right? And sodium rushes in. Okay? Sodium starts to rush in. Because on the outside of this neuron is tons and tons of sodium. Sodium is much higher in the extracellular environment than it is in the intracellular environment. Sodium is very high on the outside. And what helped to create this membrane potential where there's so much sodium on the outside and so little on the inside. Right, that's right. So there was a pump. Remember these pumps and remember, uh, what is it? Uh, active transport and the facilitated diffusion, right? So in active transport, you've got these pumps. In this case, the sodium potassium pump. Right, that is constantly what it does is it pumps 
three sodiums out and two potassiums in. Right? And it's doing this consistently, so eventually what you end up with is lots of sodium on the outside and lots of potassium on the inside, right? Kylie, you look, does that look okay? Okay. Okay, so... Lots of sodium on the outside, lots of potassium on the inside, but technically it's three out for every two in. So over time, there's actually going to be more positives on the outside than there are positives on the inside, which overall contributes to a negative voltage. Right? Okay, so that happens. So remember, so by facilitated diffusion, if I open a, a sodium channel, Right? This is a sodium channel and I open it, which is kind of analogous. We did the dam analogy, right? Here's a dam. A lot of water on one side, very little water on the other. Imagine this is sodium. Okay. So if we open a hole here, let's call that the sodium channel. Right? The sodium is going to come gushing out that way. All right? <sighs> Open the floodgates. Literally. Look. It's like <sighs> sodium is rushing in like crazy. All right? And so that happens. So sodium starts rushing in. As this thing propagates, right? But right behind it Right behind it, as sodium is rushing in, potassium is actually rushing out. Right? So sodium rushes in, but then as sodium rushes in, right, this is going in this direction. As sodium rushes in, eventually, right, this is all voltage gated. Right, these are voltage-gated channels. So the, you hit a certain voltage where sodium channels open, eventually at a high enough voltage, and that once you reach kind of an equilibrium, sodium channels close, but then potassium channels open, right? Potassium channels open. Anyone know the exact number for the voltage at which, exact, the voltage at which potassium channels open? The plus 30? I know it goes up to plus 30. Is that because sodium reaches its uh, electrochemical equilibrium at plus 30? So then, um, but, but the potassium channels are also, also voltage gated. And they do, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's definitely the positive value. The, once the sodium, once the memory potential becomes very, very high to the positive point above zero, then potassium channels open. It may be positive 30. But eventually potassium channels open, okay, and then 
That then, of course, for the same reason here, okay, now you have uh, potassium channels. Now you have, you know, let's change this from sodium to potassium. You have the same situation where you have way more potassium on one side than the other. So when you open it, it's going to come gushing out. But in this case, there's more potassium on the inside than there is on the outside. So then that makes, when you open the potassium channel, that makes the potassium want to rush out. Which then causes, so in combination of the sodium channels closing, it reaches its equilibrium. Okay, and potassium channels opening. Now, when potassium channels open, potassium rushes out, which actually causes positive to leave, which makes it more negative. All right? So then, boom, that makes it more negative, 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 negative. In fact, it even overshoots. All right? It overshoots. And at once it overshoots, okay, so here's here's a resting potential is at minus 70. So anything that is overshooting minus 70 is known as what? Hyperpolarization, right? So it hyperpolarizes. Okay, now if it is becoming more positive when it was negative, what do we call that? Depolarization. Okay, so this was a. Where can I fit this? Right here. Depolarization. Okay, and then when the potassium channels open and the um, potential is becoming more negative, we call that a repolarization. That's right. High positive things are considered. Like in this sense, like polar only means negative. It's a good question. So, like, what happens when you get to zero and then you go from zero to thirty? Within this context, maybe we're considering minus 70 to be resting, I guess. And so then anything going off that in this direction is... Well, no, because depolarizing means removing the polarity. Yeah. You got me. That's an interesting thought. But, uh, yeah. It's an it's a interesting thought. I don't know what happens from between 0 and 30. Or, you know, semantically, if you want to... I mean, we obviously, we call this whole wave depolarization. But technically, it's because it's, it's coming from the minus 70 towards the zero, the way we're thinking about it right now. Interesting thought. So, um, so yeah. So then, but also, like, what's the difference between repolarization and hyperpolarization? 
It's yeah. it's considering the minus seventy. So we can go back and we can try to figure out the semantics of this. But the major thing is to know what when we think about these things. Well, you know, hyperpolarization versus repolarization. It, we're we're considering the fact that resting is a minus seventy. So. Um, okay, so what else is there? Okay, so you guys understand sodium channel is opening, potassium channel is opening, causing, so then it's the loss. So in this case, you're gaining positives, right? Positives are rushing in. And in this case, you're losing positives. And that's actually what's making it more negative. And then finally, once it overshoots, um, ultimately, it goes back to resting potential, and that is accomplished by the sodium-potassium sodium pumps. Good. Okay, and then also, part of this action potential cannot be reversed, cannot be added to. Right? It's analogous to flushing a toilet. Once you start flushing a toilet, you can't stop it. You can't do another flush in the middle of it. It just goes, right? It's kind of like this thing opens. It's really what happens, right? In a toilet, the thing comes up and you just have a massive influx of water, right? Can't stop it. So that is known as that period of time where you cannot cause another action potential or, um, you know, you can't cause another one and you can't stop it either. What is that period of time called? Refractory period, right? So the refractory period is pretty much here, all of this. Once it reaches threshold, until it goes to hyperpolarization. Really to resting, but that is the uh, absolute refractory period. Right? And then there is this period of time where technically you could trigger another action potential, but it's going to be harder because you're in a hyperpolarized state or you're below resting. And that area is known as the relative refractory period. Okay. Every semester I have to relearn the numbers. <laughs> I just but the concepts are what you remember over time. Right? Okay, so that's an action potential. And so that goes along, right? And then, so uh, yeah, sodium's rushing in, potassium's rushing out. Boom, this thing's like a wave. And ultimately, it's all so that it can release neurotransmitters at the synapse, right? In this case, it's inhibitory. So what is an example of an inhibitory neurotransmitter? Acetylcholine. Acetylcholine can be inhibitory. Can be excitatory or inhibitory. Sure, that's a, and it's a common one. So that's a good one. All right. Okay, acetylcholine. We'll see who's released here. So what triggers the release of neurotransmitters into the synapse? Calcium, that's right. So there's a calcium. So at the end of all this, you did all this, right? All really, if we stick a voltmeter in there, this is all. We just see a big spike along the way. 
but eventually it's got to do something useful, right? <laughs> so, um, and then so what happens is it's calcium channels that open. Calcium channels open. By the way, there's also a lot more calcium on the outside of your cells than the inside of your cells. A very massively large amount of calcium. So you can also always remember that in two plus. There's always way more calcium on the outside than the inside. Now when we learn about muscle, technically calcium is not as simple because we did cells in this class, right? We talked about cells, right? So you guys remember the endoplasmic reticulum? So technically the endoplasmic reticulum is high in calcium and so is calcium on the outside, but it's actually, calcium is very low in the cytosol. So you can have what's called store operated calcium entry where the ER will open and have calcium gushing out. And you can also have calcium channels on the outside of your cell open and have calcium gushing in. Right? So it's kind of, and in muscles we'll learn about a modified ER called the sarcoplasmic reticulum that we'll see this is actually important to make muscles uh, contract. So what I'm telling you is that calcium, if this is a cell, and if this is the nucleus, and if this is the ER, let's just make it simple, we'll call this the ER. And let's say this is the cytosol. That means that calcium is very high very high outside of the cell. Calcium is very low inside of the cytosol. But calcium is also high in the ER. So technically you can have calcium channels that open this way or calcium channels that open this way. Both of them will cause calcium to rush into the cytosol. Okay, so in this case, we're considering this to be like the cytosol. This is an axon, but this is like the cytosol of a neuron. So when the calcium channels open, calcium rushes in. Okay? That triggers the release of vesicles. There's snare proteins, there's different proteins that are calcium mediated, so they need calcium, they bind calcium in order to trigger the release of the neurotransmitter into this region. Okay, so what is this region? Here's the presynaptic side, here's the postsynaptic side. So there's going to be receptors here for acetylcholine, for example. And then this region in the middle, okay, this region right here, is known as the synaptic cleft. Alright, so calcium triggers the calcium triggers the release of these neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft. In this case, we're talking about acetylcholine. Okay, so acetylcholine binds to acetylcholine receptors on the postsynaptic side. Is that making sense? 
So acetylcholine receptors on the postsynaptic side. This could be, any, we're saying this is a neuron, right? Another neuron. So what we talked about specific types of acetylcholine receptors. Let's see, we could put that. You guys got this? I'm gonna move this down a little bit. So let's focus on that. Acetylcholine, very important for a lot of uh, peripheral neuronal control and function. Uh, and autonomic, somatic and autonomic control of, of you know, your muscles, your, your skeletal muscle, your heart, your everything, you know. So voluntary and involuntary movement. Acetylcholine is a very important receptor. So we talked about two major different types of acetylcholine receptors. Anybody remember those? That's one of them. Nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. First identified because it, it binds, it uh, responds to nicotine. Yeah. That's right. I can barely hear you back there. But yes. Muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. Um, those are specific to acetylcholine. The general term for these two different types of receptors, because they're one of them is is one type and the other is another type. So, in other words, uh, I should write this like this. So, acetylcholine has these different types of receptors, which are examples of what types of receptors. It ends with tropic. If it is a, a nicotinic receptor, is a receptor that, as it binds to the neurotransmitter, it functions as an ion channel. So it allows, so in other words, it functions as an ion channel, and a ligand-gated ion channel. Does that ring a bell? Ligand-gated. Ion channel. Okay, so it binds to, let's say it binds to acetylcholine, let's say it binds to two acetylcholine. And then it's going to open, so acetylcholine is the ligand, and it's going to open, that's going to cause it to open the channel and allow an ion, let's say the ion is sodium, to travel through the channel. So that's what's happening here. Okay. Say this is sodium rushing in, right? So that's happening here. Sodium is going to rush in as a result of this type of receptor. It's a ligand-gated ion channel. Anyone remember what it's called? Ionotropic. That's right. And for the next one, instead of uh, blurting out the answer, why don't you turn to your partner and try to tell me, well, uh, tell me what you, th what, tell your partner what you think this one is. Anybody have a, you don't have a partner, you can tell me.
Yeah, right? So yeah, this is metabotropic, right? Yeah. So this is metabotropic, and it's a little different, right? So it's here in the membrane. Technically, these things, they, they do look like this because they have seven transmembrane domains. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Technically, they look like this, kind of. I mean, that's a cartoon, but that's how they draw them because they do have seven transmembrane domains, technically, if they are a GPCR. All the GPCRs, about 50% or greater than 50% of all pharmacological drugs are targeting GPCRs, some GPCR. Even like, you know, beta blockers for your high blood pressure, that's targeting a GPCR. An adrenergic receptor, beta adrenergic receptor. Okay, so uh, GPCRs, they act a little different, right? So GPCR stands for nicotinic, this is, oh, well, sorry, okay. I should say this is muscarinic because it reacts to muscarin. All right, and most of them, or most metabotropic receptors in general are GPCRs, which stands for, anyone know that one? Yes. That's right. So it's, they call it a G-protein coupled receptor because it's coupled to a G-protein. A G-protein. There's like a... Somewhere along in the exam, I asked you a Snoop Dogg question, and there's a joke about how the receptor's always writing with the G. <laughs> so it's the G-protein coupled receptor, right? So... Um, yeah, so it's G-protein coupled. And uh, the G-protein, usually what happens is, the, in this case, it's acetylcholine, right? So this muscarinic acetylcholine receptor is going to bind to acetylcholine. And then what that's going to do is that's going to activate the G-protein. The G-protein is then going to go off and activate something else. Typically, it's adenyl cyclase. We're going to see this today if we make it to the other sensories we're supposed to talk about. Um, the G protein is going to go off and activate something else, which then causes something to happen. Usually, adenylylcyclase is going to generate cyclic AMP. I'm only bringing this up because you, you'll see this today. And then, finally, it's also going to trigger some sort of ion influx. Ion influx into the cell. Usually it's making cyclic AMP from, I believe, ATP. AMP, or, yeah. Okay, so you get ion influx. You also get the accumulation of something else that might be useful. And the real point that we talked about last time is that it uses a secondary messenger, right? Because it's not just a directly an ion channel, right? It binds to something, it binds, to, it's coupled to the G protein. So when it binds, it activates the G protein. The G protein goes off, does some stuff, and ultimately, then finally, an ion comes in. Okay? So those are generally, these types of receptors are ionotropic versus metabotropic. In the case of acetylcholine, specific examples of these are nicotinic, which is an ionotropic receptor, and muscarinic, which is a metabotropic 
receptor. And this is how they act. Okay? So that's what's going on here. Okay, so one of these is triggering an influx of sodium. The other has a secondary messenger. Okay, and it's, it's acting through here and it's generating cyclic AMP and doing other things and also causing ion influx. And that those things may be acting in an inhibitory or excitatory manner if it's acetylcholine. All right, typically excitatory in most of the examples we're going to talk about. Yeah. Both, both of them. Both, both and uh, meta, meta metabotropic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this one, this one is, is definitely a ligand gated ion channel. This one is ligand, it's, it's binding to a ligand, but it's, it's not considered, this is not considered an ion channel. This is just a, a G protein coupled receptor. So it's a receptor that binds to the ligand, but then what it does is it activates the G protein. And the G protein then activates something else which in turn may activate something else, which will ultimately lead to an ion channel opening. But it, so it uses a secondary messenger to open the channel. Rather than, this is direct. This is a direct uh, opening. Good question. Okay. Huh? Okay. We talk about anything else? Sound right? It's good to review. Before we go on, ah, we also talked about uh, re like a basic reflex, All right? So you know this happens. So you know it, in the most basic level, how can I do this over here? We talked about how you have some receptors in your skin, where you know cutaneous receptors, or right below the skin. Uh, you have a lot of sensory input, right? So sensation, sensory. So sensory is anything. Right, you have some sort of sensory neuron. That could be any type of mechanoreceptor, thermoreceptor, whatever, right? You touch stuff, you can feel this, right? It's like, uh, or if you touch hot water or cold water, or, um, of course, we're going to talk about your other senses like vision, smell, auditory. Uh, we're going to, if we get to it, we're going to talk about that today. But also, peripherally, right, in your hands, in your everything, your mouth, your nose, everything, all over your body, you have sensory input, right? So those are just neurons. They're ingrained. They're, they could be free nerve endings, or they could be, you know, you know, there, there's, we talked about mechanically gated channels, right? So those would be like the mechanoreceptors that are sensitive to touch and pressure. We talked about, uh, we'll see that even taste, some of it can be like ion, direct ion channels. The protons in the food can activate directly ion channels to trigger some sort of sensation. Or, um, you know, there's different ways that we, so this is, even here you can kind of see, right? Fine touch, proprioception, vibration, nociception, temperature, coarse touch. These inputs, right? They're inputs, 
right? They're inputs. So we, could, we describe those as the sensory neurons because they're going to the central nervous system from the periphery, right? So they go at the most basic level. It could be as simple as one synapse. A monosynaptic reflex would be that it synapses directly on a motor neuron, which goes the other way, right? That's not what we're describing there. But the, technically, the most simple reflex in the world would be a monosynaptic, meaning you go from sensory to motor, right? So, and what, I mix them up, but one of these is afferent and one of these is efferent. Afferent's going in, right? So this is the afferent. And let's say this is the most simple reflex in the world. A monosynaptic. Monosynaptic means, mono means one, right? Usually there's at least an inner neuron in the spinal cord or something, but let's say there's not. Let's say it's the most simple reflex in the, or reflex in the world. That is just as we're describing there. Except this one has an action potential which releases neurotransmitters to another one which is powerful enough with all these graded channels or whatever coming in is powerful enough and let's say that this controls a muscle all right so then the sensory side is input the output is motor it's a motor neuron because it's controlling the movement of something all right and this is the efferent we talked about that right we started getting into sensation that's the most simple reflex in the world today in lab if we can figure these things out we're going to do some reflex uh, we'll try to measure our reaction time and reflex that'll be fun so we'll be trying to you know a lot of times there's going to be at least an inner neuron here and then if you get into more complex things which we're going to try to measure the sensory input's going to come to the spinal cord and move up to the brain right because a lot of the processing for sensory input takes place up there in the somatosensory cortex Right, you have a specific region of your brain where a lot of this input comes in. Right, the somatosensory, this is like the major sensory input processing center of your brain. Okay, it's somatosensory cortex. You guys learned that in anatomy. So that's kind of what this slide is about here. We also talked about phasic and tonic. You guys remember that? So what's the story of phasic and tonic? Phasic versus tonic. Right? We described several different types of mechanoreceptors which are either phasic or tonic. Most of them were phasic, right? But what's the difference between phasic and tonic? If I have a stimulus, let's say I have a stimuli, okay, so it's constantly stimulating both of these types of receptors, right? Let's say it's my hand, right? This one is a certain type. My cannabis receptor here, no matter how many times I push it, I'm still feeling that, right? So, well, the receptors that I'm feeling, would those be considered phasic or tonic? As I'm pushing here, I'm still feeling this. 
It's not like it's going away. Actually, it's starting to bother me more. All right, so what, what types of receptors would be continuously detecting the stimulus? Would that be phasic or tonic? You got a 50-50 shot. Tonic, that's right, tonic. All right, so tonic, tonic receptors, so let's say the signaling, right? Signaling, because the signal, you know, they got to, let's say they're actually, you know, causing a, a, some sort of input to the brain or, you know, at least in this case, there's not an immediate motor reflex like a knee jerk thing. So uh, my brain is, so those sensory inputs are going to my somatosensory cortex, right? So that's happening over and over again in the case of the tonic receptors. Is that making sense? Now, if it's a phasic receptor, it's actually more sensitive to the change than it is to the stimuli itself. So that means that if it were a phasic receptor, when I first started doing this, it would notice and then it'd stop caring, stop noticing. And when I stop, it would notice. All right? So it would signal here at the beginning and it would signal here at the end. Some receptors are like that. I, I have a dentist. Well, my physiology instructor was a dentist. And he told me he liked to push on the mouth of, before he gave him the shot, he'd push on their mouth. He put pressure on the top of their mouth with something. And he believed that that would affect some pain receptors, which would then not be triggered by the needle itself because he had already applied some sort of pressure. Whether that's, you know, there's certainly, I'm sure, some nociception that's phase, you know, phase, more phasic, right? So I don't know. Uh, I haven't tried that experiment, but I don't think we're going to try that in this class. But some other examples I try to use, I mean, the best, the best experiment I think that we have for that is with thermoreceptors. I told you guys with the hot and cold water. So we'll try to do that when we do a... a we could try to do it today if we have cups. Maybe I'll ask the tech to bring cups out next time. And we'll, we'll, that is the coolest experiment because you, you take one hand, you put it in hot water. You take one hand, you put it in cold water. You let those sit there for like a minute. And then you put them both in lukewarm water. And the one that was in hot water now feels cold. And the one that was in cold water now feels hot. But you have them both in the same lukewarm water. That is like amazing, right? So that means that whatever those thermoreceptors are, they're more sensitive to the change than they are to the stimulus, the actual temperature itself, right? Which I said also explains why if you live in Chicago, you get used to it, right? But then if you're from Chicago, you're so used to it, then you move to San Diego and you're like, God, it's so hot here. And then you live here for a while and you're like, wait, it's like getting cold when it's like 60 degrees, right? Because those thermoreceptors are more sensitive to the change, the dynamics than they are to the actual temperature itself. Okay, so that's, those are just analogies of like, more like phasic sensory input. Okay, you have both. Another example is, uh, we'll talk about uh, odor, but yeah, you can also adjust to smells, right? Which we all have, you know, we all adjust to our own. And uh, yeah, and so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, so, these different types of receptor input, right, are coming 
through, they go into your central nervous system. So most basically that's at the spinal cord, right? A knee jerk reflex or something like this doesn't have to travel to your brain. The, re the synapse is right there in the spinal cord. And then it can go receive some sort of motor in, uh, output, right? But then we talked about how other things are much more complex, right? Especially pain is the most complex because the pain centers are not necessarily in your somatosensory cortex. They may be neighboring. But pain and nociception is a tricky one. Just like temperature, we don't fully understand temperature either, right? We said that we've identified these thermal receptors and, but, and, and, uh, and channels, but we don't completely understand how thermal sensation works either, right? But we know that these are sensory inputs that are happening, right? And we know that they propagate up to the brain. Um, and these are some old experiments where literally, what was it, one or two, uh, two neurosurgeons, Penfield and uh, Rasmussen, right, literally had a patient's brain open and was just, you know, stimulating different regions of the brain and being like, so what do you feel? Or <laughs> like... It's literally what happened, right? So I don't think they would do that nowadays, right? But imagine the patient just awake there with their brain just hanging out, just like, so uh, what, what, where does this go, you know? So this is how they figured this out, right? So they mapped the region. So notice how much of your somatosensory cortex is dedicated to your, your hand and your fingers, right? Look how much is dedicated to your lips. All right, you guys have seen this. Have all of you taken anatomy? But it was anatomy during COVID, right? So do you remember seeing this? 2012. <laughs> okay. So um, this is very famous, right? This is a very famous map of, because, uh, you know, this is not something that you could probably do nowadays, right? Um, but yeah, you can kind of get an idea of what regions are dedicated to what in the somatosensory cortex uh, via this map. So you see, you have all this peripheral input coming to your somatosensory cortex that has literally been mapped out. And here it is in your brain, right? So this is the region that we're talking about. Okay, and also it's got uh, some things here. Also, there's some nociception and other uh, inputs that are coming to regions uh, neighboring the somatosensory cortex. And of course, other inputs as we're going to hopefully get to, what time is it? Are we done already? Yeah, we're doing fine. We'll get to this. But it's good to, this is fundamental, right? So, um, so we can start talking about this stuff today. Maybe I'll talk about vision today. Vision's a good one, right? Talk about vision. Okay, so, uh, but as you can see, these different inputs, right? We talked about somatic senses, which is all this peripheral stuff to the somatosensory cortex. But you also have sound. You also have vision. You also have taste. You also have olfaction, which you know, may go to different regions of the, of the brain, right? Occipital lobe, visual cortex, auditory cortex, gustatory cortex, um, olfactory bulb, limbic. So, uh, yeah, different, different regions of the brain are processing different senses. All right, today let's talk about, I added this slide too, but that way I could actually put this slide into it rather than, uh, so today let's talk about let's talk about vision. We could start with smell. 
could go in order. I feel like Vision is, I mean, it smells pretty special because it's, it's, it's uh, hardwired into your limbic system, which is like memories and emotions. But let's do, and here, look at taste buds. Here's like uh, GPCR input or I, like metabotropic or ionotropic se sensory input to, those are your, like your taste buds, your uh, taste receptors, transduction. Well, let's do vision. We got time for one, and, and the one that I want you to like learn the pathways more, most uh, detailed is vision. So let's start there. Uh, of course, you guys all probably know that uh, you see you, your eyes are the, the beginning of your uh, sensory input for vision. It's not the whole story, but eyes are pretty special because the most pre-processing of any type of sensation in your body takes place in your retina. Right, your retina does a lot of pre-processing. So of course, you know, your eyes, this pupilla, the pupillary reflex is just the fact that your eyes constrict in the presence of light, right? Um, and of course, yes, this, this, these signals ultimately travel via the optic nerve, right, all the way back to the midbrain and ultimately to the occipital lobe in the visual cortex, right? So your vision actually goes all the way to the back of your brain. And it crosses over somewhat. Some of it crosses over, some of it remains. Uh, your eye is a, contains a lens, just like a camera, just like a microscope, right? That lens is uh, here, right? And uh, that the lens will focus the light to the back, okay, into your fovea. Well, it depends. So it has, you have a specific region where when you look directly ahead, it goes to your fovea, right? The fovea and the fovea centralis here, which is a region of your retina that's very high in cones. All right, so you have different photoreceptors in your retina. So this is what we're looking at here. So this light comes... Okay, through the lens, it's focused and it arrives on the retina. The retina is all the way through here. If you see this, all the way through here, all the way around here, this is all retina. There's only one big hole, which is where it's connected to your optic nerve. And so there is a blind spot in your vision. Have you guys ever done that experiment where you can see the blind spot? Yeah. You've seen it? You take, so you can, you can take a dot, you draw a dot on a piece of paper, and if you get it into just the right spot, it will disappear. And that's, and that's because it's hitting here. Your, the, your focal point will be there, which is a region that's not retina. It's, it's, it's uh, the mass accumulation of the ganglion cells that are all around your retina, all centralized there at the optic nerve and then travel in. We can try to do that experiment when we get into senses. Okay, so... Um, but most of your retina is lined with photoreceptors. Photoreceptors are the very beginning of the transduction of the sensations of light that go to your brain, okay? And that's what you can see here. Um, do I have a better picture? Yeah, I do, okay. I was gonna say that's too small. So that's what you can see here. So the light travels and it hits on this side and these guys interact first. Okay, the, uh, the photoreceptors connected to the pigment epithelium. Okay, so, look at, so on this picture, those guys are lining here on this side. 
okay, on the opposite side of where the light is coming from. Okay, and then it works backwards. Uh, yeah, so it, 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 the light hits here, has a reaction here, and then this is what I mean by pre-processing. So these photoreceptors detect light, but then they, they see these then interact with, and this is not a full story. This is not all the cells involved, but the most basic connection is they have to at least go through a bipolar neuron, okay? Um, bipolar neurons, you know, are, are have a receptor input on one side and motor output on the other side. Um, they look kind of like symmetrical almost, like, you know, this side and that side. It's not like they have a m bunch of connections on one side and very little connections on the other, right? So they're kind of equal on both sides. So uh, the light has to go through the photoreceptor, has to at least travel to the bipolar neurons, and then those then propagate the signal onto the ganglion cells. And these ganglion cells are the neurons that are comprising, they have the axons that comprise the optic nerve. These things run back all the way to your midbrain. Okay? But there's actually more cells involved, which you can see here. See, you also have these horizontal cells. You see those? And those are connected. They're at this layer, so they're connected to these photoreceptors and may somehow be involved in the transduction through the bipolar layer. And then on this side, you also have amacrine cells. Same thing. They're interacting in a lateral way. Both the horizontal cells and the amacrine cells are interacting in a lateral way. So it's not as direct as just rods, bipolar neurons, ganglion cells. There's also this lateral interactions taking place as well. Um, this can kind of be hacked. So last I checked, and I don't know if they've made real process on this, but at one time they had cameras that they were hooking up with a microchip to the ganglion cell layer. So they were taking a camera and hooking up a, a, a chip to the ganglion cell layer, which is the inside, you know, of the retina. And they were getting about eight, eight bit vision. They were taking blind people and giving them about eight bit vision by just hacking through, right? But the problem is they couldn't give them perfect vision in this way because there's a lot of pre-processing here that's going on in the retina that we don't fully understand how it's happening or what's going on. If we did, then we could just give everybody vision, right? Um, and there's other ways now that they're trying to give people back vision using gene therapy and things like this to, to, uh, to correct dead cells or cells that are damaged or not functioning properly. But uh, yeah, vision is something we're still trying to work out, right? But we know that this is happening. We know the photoreceptors are detecting this light and it's traveling. There's this, these lateral interactions with these horizontal amacrine cells. And ultimately, it's traveling through bipolar cells to the ganglion cells, which then their axons run all the way back to the midbrain. And then you have the whole occipital visual cortex processing, right? Which is like, have you heard about that experiment where they have people wear glasses that make them see the world upside down? So they put glasses on them that make them see the world upside down. And after a certain amount of time, their brain just adjusts to it and just flips it. So they see everything right side up. And then they could then they take the glasses off, and then of course now they're seeing upside down again, and they like gotta fix. But that's all processing that's going on in the visual cortex, most likely, you know, in the occipital region. So there's a lot going on there as well. Okay, so what do we want to know? Well, when it comes to photoreceptors, 
This is more of the like kickback and let's look at pictures part. And then next class we'll probably draw this on the whiteboard. So class. <laughs> uh, so you have different types of photoreceptors in your retina, right? You have rods and you have cones. Anybody know the difference between rods and cones? Why don't you talk to your neighbor about it? What is the difference between rods and cones? Yeah, kind of. So, yeah, yeah. So cones, yeah. So it's, it's light. Yeah, I, I would say like grayscale versus color. Because all of them are going to be sensitive to light. But then it's like... But I'd say that, yeah, cone, or rods are also sensitive to dark. And so they're like kind of the... Uh, they can give you like a sense of grayscale and things like that. Because they're also, depending on how much light is there, they'll, they'll act differently in dark versus light. Yep, those are rods. Uh, I'll talk about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, you pretty much got it. All right, so what do you guys decide? Oop. I'll give you a couple. I'll give you. Take a breather. I should get some water. All right, so what do you guys decide? Uh, you go. <laughs> not sure which one's which, but I don't know one's like for finer detail. I'm going to call on, uh, is it Jay? Jay? Jay's fine. Jay? Jay's fine? All right. Sorry, Joe. Yeah, or like, I, I was telling Kylie, like, more like grayscale. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, and Joe, what were you going to say? Same thing? All right. Yeah, so basically, yeah, at its most basic level, uh, both of them are reacting to light. But rods are particularly good in the dark. In fact, uh, so, uh, you know, most basically you could say, like, rods are good for grayscale. I know gray is spelled two different ways, so I don't think I'm spelling it wrong. Cones are good for color, right? And you have different cones for different colors. I think I have a slide for that. Yeah. You have um, blue cones, green cones, red cones. And you also have rods, right? Which are reacting to, uh, you know, light in general. Um, so what else can we say about them? Well... Something that's kind of cool about rods, we are going to focus on rods when we try to understand photo uh, perception. And I will also tell you that a cool thing about rods is if we, which we, I don't think we can do in this class, but if we were able to get this room very, very dark, like if we covered all the windows, turned off all the lights, and if we were sitting in the dark, eventually your eyes adjust to the dark, right? So at first, like, we won't be able to see anything. But then a couple of minutes later, we'll all start to be able to see each other, right, pretty well. And by the end of it, we'll be completely adjusted, right? That's, that's because of the... Like going into a movie theater. I just went into a movie this weekend, and it's been forever. It's been two years since I've been, but that's what happened. 
That's what happened. Even though there was a big bright screen. Ah, so yeah, that's right. So if there's, oh, so you were there before the movie started. Ah, so it was like dark. So yeah, well, at first you're like looking around, like trying to find your seat, because they, they didn't have the rope lights. But it was like minimal. Right. Yeah, but then you sit there for a little while, all of a sudden you start looking around, you're like, oh, I can see. Right. And so the reason for that, yeah, that's, that's rods, and that's actually... Um, the accumulation of something that's called rhodopsin. So rhodopsin helps you see in the dark. Rhodopsin helps you see in the dark. And what rhodopsin is in the dark. See in the dark. Rhodopsin is composed of 11 cis retinol plus opsin. You guys all see that? 11 cis Retinol plus opsin. So these are two individual different things. This, as you can see there, it's like a, a chemical with one uh, cyclic whatever. I mean, this is not a perfect drawing of it. Okay? And then opsin is an actual type of receptor channel that we will discuss. Okay? And that's what you're looking at there is uh, actually sorry I did this I draw it like this because technically opsin is a GPCR but when it's rhodopsin they're together so when it's rhodopsin they exist together And then when light hits, if light hits, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so let me do it like this. So rhodopsin is composed of 11 cis retinol and opsin. There we go. Now, if you hit, if you hit these photos, if you hit the rods of light, that actually changes the conformation of the retinol. So the retinal changes to all trans. So rhodopsin breaks apart. So rhodopsin no longer exists. You lose rhodopsin. Okay, because that means that rhodopsin is gone. In the presence of light, you break rhodopsin apart. So that means in the dark, in the dark, you accumulate rhodopsin. Okay, but in the presence of light, you lose rhodopsin. And the reason why is because the 11 cis retinol becomes, it changes conformation and becomes all trans retinol. OK? 
Okay, so it changes its conformation. So this is the light sensitive component is retinal. Really, because in the presence of the photons from light, it changes its conformation. You guys see that? How's that? Yeah? It's like... So that says all trans retinal. It's also right here. So see this thing, 11 cis retinal, okay, in the presence of light, changes its conformation and becomes all trans retinal. Okay? And then what that does is then that activates opsin, which is a GPCR. You guys remember the GPCRs? Right? So GCPR, it's always coupled with the G protein, right? So that activates the G protein, which goes off via a second messenger and then causes ultimately an ion channel influx. Okay? So this is what happens in your rods upon the exposure to light. It's a little more complicated than that, but this is basically what we're describing, okay? All transretinol plus activated opsin. Okay? So if this, in the dark, this will re isomerize back into 11 cis retinol, which will couple with opsin to form rhodopsin. So this accumulates in the dark. And as this accumulates, that's how you start to adjust to the darkness the accumulation of rhodopsin. In the presence of light, or even if your eyes get photobleached out, it's a major loss due to a chemical uh, reaction that's taking place and the activation of a different perce perception pathway of vision, which we'll discuss now. So here's a little bit more detailed view of What's going on? Right, so just to remind you, the G protein, right, is acting through something. It, you tend to get an accumulation of cyclic AMP. We're going to see that right now in this system. Okay. So, an important thing to remember about. Um, and this is like out of focus, I can't even read this. But an important thing to remember about um, vision is that actually, so here, this is the photoreceptor released to the bipolar neurons. In the presence of darkness, actually those things are tonically, they're releasing neurotransmitters into the bipolar neurons. So that's kind of a backwards thing. Like It's actually when it's dark that it's releasing more neurotransmitter. Does that make sense? So remember we said that these photoreceptors bind to bipolar neurons right which then ultimately bind to, to you know ganglion cells we'll call this the ganglion cell right which go off and that that's the those axons are the the, the optic nerve that runs to your midbrain Okay, but here at the rods, okay, when it's dark, actually you have more release of neurotransmitter into this synaptic cleft. More neurotransmitter release. 
And when the rods are light, or exposed to light, there's actually less release. Okay, so that's one thing to keep in mind is that light is actually, in the case of the rods, is actually deactivating it. Okay? Not the best artist. So that's an important point. Now, how is that actually happening? All right, so we know that rhodopsin... Um, is involved here. We know that rhodopsin accumulates okay, as the in the presence of darkness. Okay, but what else is going on there? Right? So we know rhodopsin is inactive. Let's see, rhodopsin, here's rhodopsin. Inactive, right? Technically it's the opsin that's inactive, right? It's forming rhodopsin. Um, there's a G protein that is coupled to this, and I should say that it's more correct to say inactive and say this G protein, which is called transducin, is inactive. That's the G, that's the G. This is the GPCR, this is the G. Um, okay, there is potassium channels. Here, I should use a different color. There is potassium channels that are open. These are leaky. Potassium channels are open, they're leaky. So that means they're always open. And as they're open, which way? So this is intracellular, and that's extracellular. So potassium wants to rush outside of a cell, right? So potassium is free to rush out, and that's fine. What would be the effect of potassium rushing outside of the cell? How does that change the membrane potential of the photoreceptor? It yeah, it hyperpolarizes it, right? So that's always happening. It's leaky, so it's constantly kind of being hyperpolarized, okay? However, in the dark, there's another channel that's open called a CNG channel. Anybody know what CNG stands for? So CNG stands for cyclic nucleotide gated channel. Cyclic nucleotide gated channel. And it turns out that inside of the inside of this this uh, photoreceptor, there's a lot of what's known as cyclic GMP. 
And what cyclic GMP does is it binds to this uh, channel and allows for the influx of sodium and calcium. Everybody getting all that? Okay, so potassium's leaking out, which is hyperpolarizing the 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 um, photoreceptor. However, cyclic GMP levels are high inside of the photoreceptor, and that is leading to it to bind to this CNG channel, cyclic nucleotide gated channel. So this is a ligand gated channel and the ligand is cyclic GMP yeah okay so, um, so yeah so that in the presence of darkness this channel is open okay which is really giving rise to so this is overcoming this potassium channel because there's so much sodium and calcium influx this is actually leading to a more depolarized state Right, which is actually what's triggering the more neurotransmitter release. Okay, so let's say this is at minus 40 millivolts. I don't want to mix it with the calcium, so we'll say minus 40 or potassium, minus 40 millivolts. Okay. 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 So this. These ion channel influx is actually what is leading to a depolarization that is triggering, triggering more neurotransmitter release in these photoreceptors. Now, in the presence of light, rhodopsin breaks apart and becomes, remember that this thing becomes, I have to erase this a little bit. Okay, this thing becomes activated. Okay, so the transducin. How did I say this? Yeah, G present. Okay, light hits, it breaks this. Okay, this was 11 cis. This was 11 cis retinal. This becomes all trans retinal. It breaks apart from the opsin, right? And so the opsin becomes activated. The opsin becomes active. That then in turn activates the G protein, transducin. Okay, what, what transducin actually does is it activates phosphodiesterase. Okay, which is, I'm missing in that thing, but um, what transducin activated transducin activates phosphodiesterase which is PDE 
which breaks down cyclic GMP. So transducin, which is the G protein, goes off and ultimately there's a series of steps. You guys see that? Better? So think about that, what that's going to do to the, the cell. Let's just ignore this. There's a way to, oh, that's cool. There's a way to make this disappear. I don't know how to do it. But let's just ignore the slides for a second. And let's think about this. Okay. So when light hits, it activates opsin. Opsin activates transducin. Transducin, it, what it does, it's a, it activates an adenyl cyclase, but ultimately what happens is it activates a phosphodiesterase. Phosphodiesterase goes and breaks down cyclic GMP. So what's going to happen if you break down cyclic GMP? So cyclic GMP was high inside of the cell, but now you're breaking that down with this enzyme that's activated, phosphodiesterase. That breaks down cyclic GMP. If you remove cyclic GMP from the environment, what happens to this CNG channel? Cyclic nucleotide gated channel. Its, it's ligand is cyclic GMP. Cyclic GMP binds to it to cause it to allow things to flow through. So if you remove the ligand, what happens to the channel? Yeah, closes, right? So now this CNG channel is closed. All right? But then, potassium channel is still open because it's leaking. Okay, so potassium is still rushing out. It's still open. So what does that do to the overall membrane potential of the photoreceptor? That's right. It causes a hyperpolarization, which ultimately leads to, oops, a more decreased, right, a more decreased membrane potential, which leads to less neurotransmitter release less does that make sense kind of that's just once through it so it's not that bad is it all you need to know is that this is a, a key thing though you need to know that light activates the G protein, which ultimately activates this enzyme, which, which breaks down cyclic GMP. Cyclic GMP then can no longer bind to the ligand-gated channel, so this closes. Once that closes, though, you still have release of potassium, which then hyperpolarizes the photoreceptor, and you have less neurotransmitter release. 
So then what would you expect to happen then at this bipolar neuron? Would you expect this one to be more active and this one to be less active? You would, but that's not actually how it goes. It could actually go either way. So depending upon, and like we said, there's a lot of pre-processing that occurs in the retina. So depending upon what type of receptor it is, um, it may actually be activated or inhibited by this change in, in, uh, in signal. So, um, which further complicates things, right? So it's, it's not like it's a, a direct, like, uh, you know, on and off kind of thing. It depends on the bipolar neurons and what types of receptors they have, whether they're ionotropic or metabotropic. And, and so on and so forth. And then also, another important part of this is to point out the fact that what you receive at your photoreceptors, right, by the time it actually makes it to the ganglion cell, it's been really strongly pre-processed. Right, so a lot of that has been completely removed by the time it makes it there. Okay. That's the pre-processing. Uh, and then of course that goes back Right, to the midbrain and ultimately to the occipital lobe visual cortex. So that's kind of what we understand somewhat about vision. I used to work in a, a retinal detachment lab. There's a lot of imaging. Because, you know, like we just look at it. <laughs> like we look at how the cells behave in different conditions and, and uh, just, you know, just trying to understand. There's, a lot of, there's stem cells in there. There's a lot, of, uh, there's a lot going on in the retina. And yeah, retinal detachment is still a problem, right? It, some individuals, your retina, it could be an, an injury or it can just spontaneously detach and you start losing your sight. So, um, still an intense area of study. Okay, so that's, that's one sensory pathway. Are we a little bit over? We're a little bit over, so we can take a longer break if you guys want. <laughs>